Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special edition of Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Pete Waltz. Today's a special day. It's Tuesday, and on the ELA Employment Matters podcast, it's Travel Tuesday. Each week, we get the chance to dial in our members from around the world to share with us some of the important things we need to know about doing business in their jurisdiction. Today, we're going to be learning more about doing business in Malaysia. I'm pleased to welcome to the show Vijay Venagopal, a partner at Sharon Delamore and Company in Malaysia. Vijay, how are you today? Very well, Peter, and thank you for the opportunity to speak. Well, we're looking forward to it. Just start out, by, if you would, by giving us kind of a general overview of the jurisdiction, what the economy's like, population, demographics, any key industries, things that you think might be important for them to frame the perspective on Malaysia. Certainly, Peter. Malaysia is one of these really interesting countries that perhaps in the last few years have come up to the fore. I remember years ago when I used to be in university and I used to tell friends I was in Malaysia, I would usually get asked, where's that? And then I would tell them it's next to Thailand. And they go, oh, I've been to Thailand. And yet people hadn't heard about Malaysia. Fortunately, that's changed over the last couple of years. Now, in terms of population, our population isn't very large. It's about 30.7 million as at this year. And the annual growth rate is only 0.2%. We actually have a very mixed population. So unlike other jurisdictions, we are multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-religious. The predominant population are of Malay descent, and that's almost about 62% of the population. We then have a very large Chinese community as well, at about 21 over percent. And the third major ethnic group would be the Indian population, which is actually relatively low compared to the others at 6.4%. We then have nearly 32 different ethnic groups in Sabah and Sarawak. Just to explain, Malaysia is actually made up of two main parts. You have Peninsular Malaysia, which is that bit of land in between Thailand and Singapore. We also have two states in Borneo, Sabah and Sarawak. They came together to form the Federation of Malaysia. So you have Peninsular Malaysia, which is where the capital Kuala Lumpur is located, and you have Sabah and Sarawak. Sabah and Sarawak, as I mentioned, are actually on the island of Borneo, which is actually a large island. You actually have three nations. The bottom part of Borneo is actually Indonesia. The top part of Borneo, you have the states of Sabah and Sarawak, which are part of Malaysia. And in between Sabah and Sarawak, you actually have the tiny state of Brunei, which is a separate country in of itself. So going back to Malaysia, you have Peninsular Malaysia, which is a piece of land in between Singapore and Thailand, where the capital Kuala Lumpur is located. And you also have the states of Sabah and Sarawak. Sabah and Sarawak actually boast amazing flora. If you ever have the opportunity, it's well worth going there. And I've actually had friends who are divers who tell me Sipada in East Malaysia is one of the best diving sites in the world. But what makes Sabah and Sarawak quite interesting is that you've got 32 different ethnic groups in Sabah and 27 different ethnic groups in Sarawak. So the population makeup in East Malaysia is even more diverse than Peninsular Malaysia. In terms of religion, the official religion of the country is Islam. So we're officially a Muslim country. But the constitution of Malaysia guarantees freedom of religion. So you'll find churches, you'll find Buddhist temples, you'll find Taoist temples. All religions can be practiced freely, but officially we're an Islamic state. So what a fascinating structure for Malaysia with all those different cultures and and languages and religions and everything going on in that country. It sounds like quite the melting pot. Let's talk about the industries. 
Tell us about how the country produces business globally and what it's, some of its local transactions are. And in general, you know, what are we known for in Malaysia when it comes to business? Certainly, Peter. The main drivers of the economy tend to be manufacturing. And in this regard, it's really high-tech electronics. Malaysia basically has a lot of factories that deal with the high-end industry, particularly the semiconductor industry. And I remember many years ago, I was involved in a case involving Horace Sorit State, which was actually the first union that was formed in the semiconductor industry in the world. So manufacturing tends to be our predominant industry. This is followed by agriculture, retail, and hospitality. In the past, rubber and tin were some of our main agricultural products. And when I say past, I'm referring to the far past. Uh, In the Second World War, for example, Malaysia was of strategic importance because of the rubber. And obviously, imagine during the wartime economy, rubber was an important commodity. Subsequently, it became tin as our main product. And today, it's actually oil palm that Malaysia promotes rather actively, both domestically and overseas. In terms of retail, all kinds of brands are available, both international brands and local brands. And finally, in the hospitality sector, Malaysia is littered with hotels because it tends to be a very popular destination to take with tourists. Aside from urban hotels, we tend to have a number of hotels based on beaches. In fact, two of our states, Penang and Malacca, have been designated as World Heritage Sites. And Penang actually is a tiny little island, so you can imagine it's surrounded by beaches all around. Very popular with tourists, so you have a World Heritage Site because of the history, plus beaches as well. So these would tend to be the main industries in Malaysia. Well, fascinating range of industries that you have there. Let's talk about the employment issues. What are some of the key structural issues that um, employers need to address when working in Malaysia? Things like works councils. And we talked about unions where you've got one of the first unions in the semiconductor industry there. But dig into that for me, if you would, Vijay, and give us more detail there. Of course. In Malaysia, in terms of unionization, you tend to have two main types of unions. In-house unions, which would be formed within the company itself and can only be limited to members of that particular company, and national unions that tend to be across borders, but be limited to that particular industry. Now, there have been quite a few changes in the landscape in the recent past. We had a piece of sweeping legislation that was introduced with effect from 1st of January 2021 that introduced a lot of changes. If you'll note, I just mentioned that there were two types of unions, in-house unions and national unions, and national unions would actually be limited to that particular industry. But part of the new amendments have been that the even national unions are no longer limited to that particular trade or industry. So you can have multiple unions coming up in a particular trade or industry. Now, how this is going to work in the long term still remains to be seen because these amendments only came into effect 1st of January 2021. And with the current pandemic, you can imagine not many people have been in the office from 1st January 2021 to now. So perhaps the effect of this is going to be seen in the near future, but there have been some sweeping changes there. In fact, there have been quite a few changes on the employment landscape in Malaysia. We've also introduced a number of new pieces of legislation. For example, we have now a minimum wage in Malaysia. Now, that may seem fairly basic. Almost all jurisdictions have a minimum wage. But until recently, Malaysia actually did not have a minimum wage. In fact, the three main pieces of legislation that we had in the labor perspective were the Employment Act 1955, the Industrial Relations Act 1971, and the Trade Unions Act 1959. So as you can see, these are all fairly old pieces of legislation. The Employment Act 1955 basically sets out the minimum terms and conditions of employment 
for those within its scope. It generally applies to lower wage earners. Currently, the limit is 2,000 ringgit a month, which is less than 400 US dollars. So it's really for the lower income people. And it basically says that you have to give certain minimum benefits. So for example, minimum amounts of overtime rates, minimum amounts of annual leave, minimum amounts of paid sick leave. You can give something higher than the Employment Act, but you can't contract below that. But interestingly enough, one glaring omission in the Employment Act was minimum wage. There was no minimum wage set. So you could put, give whatever wages you wanted, but if you did, you had to comply with certain basic standards. Fortunately, that has been corrected, and we now have a separate minimum wage act that has been introduced. It's currently 1,200 ringgit in Peninsular Malaysia and 1,100 ringgit in Sabah and Sarawak. And that's still pitifully low. Just to put this in perspective, 1,200 ringgit is less than 300 US a month. Then we actually introduced a minimum retirement age act that's come into force. So previously, there is no statutory retirement age in Malaysia. That has always been the position. Government employees previously retired at 55. That has now been increased to 57 and increased again. But for the private sector, there is no statutory retirement age. So it was left to contract. So you can put whatever you want as a retirement age in the private sector. That has now been changed. We have a minimum retirement age act that says the minimum retirement age is 60. So in the private sector, if you want to retire someone, you can't do so below the age of 60. And even if you had a contractual provision that was a lower age, for example, 55, the act says that's null and void and automatically 60 is substituted. Now, you can have a higher retirement age, 61, 65, whatever you want, but it can't be less than 60. And I think this is to cater to the growing trend around the world that with better healthcare, people are living longer. And the old idea of 50 people retiring at 55 is no longer realistic in the modern industrial sphere. So We've also introduced other legislation, Personal Data Protection Act, various other legislations that come into force, but these would be the main ones. We've also always had very strong individual protection for unfair dismissal, and that's really the Industrial Relations Act. Now, unlike the Employment Act, which only applies to certain employees, i.e. those earning less than 2,000 ringgit a month, the Industrial Relations Act applies across the board. Now, it regulates all kinds of things. For example, the registration of trade unions, claims for recognition would actually come under the Industrial Relations Act. Non-compliance proceedings, trade disputes, all are under the Industrial Relations Act. But for the individual worker, what's very important is something that we call Section 20. Basically, if an employee is dismissed, irrespective if he's paid his full amount of notice, he's entitled to file a complaint with the Industrial Relations Department under Section 20 of the Industrial Relations Act and claim dismissal without just cause or excuse. As of 1st January this year, the case will automatically be referred to the industrial court. Previously, there was a filter mechanism where the minister would decide whether to refer the case. But as of 1st January this year, it's an automatic referral. And what's interesting at the industrial court is there's a reversal of the burden. Although the employee alleges that he's been unfairly dismissed, he doesn't have to prove anything. The employer has to prove just cause or excuse for the dismissal. So the burden is actually completely on the employer. And it would not be sufficient to turn around and say that, oh, the employee signed a contract saying either party can terminate on three months notice without assigning any reason whatsoever. Doesn't matter. You still have to show just cause or excuse because it's a statutory requirement, which would obviously take precedence over any contractual arrangements. So what then happens is if the employer cannot show just cause or excuse, and this would involve calling necessary witnesses, producing evidence, et cetera, to the satisfaction of the industrial court, 
then the industrial court has very wide powers. They can order reinstatement of the employee. That means he gets his job back and back wages up to 24 months. So up to two years salary he can get. Sometimes the industrial court may feel that reinstatement is not appropriate. So they would order compensation in lieu of reinstatement, usually about a month per year of service, plus the back wages of up to 24 months. So you can imagine if someone who's been working for a company for 10 years gets dismissed and they take an action in the industrial court, an employer could be looking at up to 34 months back wages. That's 24 months as the full back wages plus one month per year of service. So there's a very strong incentive for employers to make sure that they get it right. And any dismissal in Malaysia has to be with just cause or excuse, basically reasonable grounds. There have been some small amendments again since 1st January in this respect. Previously, if an employee passed away during the course of the trial, the action died with him because you cannot reinstate someone who has passed on. So it was a personal action. It automatically abated with death. But again, as of 1st January this year, an amendment has been introduced to say that the estate can continue with the action on behalf of the employee. Obviously, there are practical considerations. If the employee has passed away, how is he going to give evidence? But this can certainly be helpful in a case that where perhaps the employee has given evidence, but the trial is midway. But in any event, the trial now can proceed even once the employee has passed away. And our final amendment that's been introduced this year is actually the introduction of interest. Because the industrial court is meant to help people and to promote industrial harmony, it's always been free. There's no cost. So there's no filing fees. Win or lose, either party pays their own legal fees. And in the past, there's never been provisions for interest. So these back wages would not be subject to interest. However, as of 1st January this year, a provision has just been introduced to allow the industrial court to actually order interest on the amounts awarded as well. So you can see the trend seems to be to increase the protection, not as perhaps aggressively as other jurisdictions, because we already had very strong individual protection in Malaysia. But that would be the industrial court. And the third piece of legislation I mentioned was actually the Trade Unions Act. I'm not going to go into that in detail. It basically regulates trade unions, uh, sets out the rules, the legal requirements, etc. But one point I do want to mention here, which I think is pertinent under the Trade Unions Act, is we're slightly different from other countries. And that is Malaysia does not allow for lightning strikes. Strikes are generally considered to be bad for the economy by the government. So you cannot have strikes in what we call essential services. And even for non-essential services, there are various procedural requirements that have to be complied with before a strike is called. And these include giving 21 days advance notice to the employer of the strike and having a secret ballot where two-thirds of the members actually vote in favor of the strike. Now, those are very strict requirements and very different from other jurisdictions like the US, Australia, the UK. And You can imagine that strikes are perhaps not a very strong tool in Malaysia because of the strict procedural requirements. But of course, unions have other tools, picketing, go slow, refusal to do overtime, etc. But I just wanted to point out one big difference, and that is the position on strikes. And our law is very strict. If a strike does not comply with the strict procedural requirements, it is automatically deemed illegal. Well, that's something for sure. And it sounds like, you know, you started out by talking about how the wages are pretty conservative and that they've been kept low. And I, I thought I was going to say, well, it sounds like a pro-business environment. But then when we think about all the protections in place for the employee, I could go the other direction. So what would you say? Is the general business climate pro-business or pro-employee in Malaysia? It's actually a very interesting dichotomy, Peter. 
On the one hand, Malaysia is very pro-business. In fact, our economy does rely on foreign direct investment very heavily. So we want to encourage investment from overseas. And that is the reason why, for example, the unions perhaps do not have all the tools that they have in other jurisdictions. Most of the tools are available, but strikes, which tends to be one of the strongest tools, are not available. And it's a very simple reason. Two, strikes are not good for the economy. I'll give you a simple example, Peter. If you were to compare, say, India, India has had garbage strikes. Now, garbage strikes are crippling to the country. And I'm not just talking about any industry. You have garbage piling up. Aside from the odor, you also have health issues that come into play. So Malaysian government says essential industries, no strikes. Now, for private sector, since essential industries don't have strikes, we can't be having strikes going on in the private sector willy-nilly. So we want to restrict the rights of strikes. Now, we need to balance that somehow because we also need to make sure that workers are protected. So that is why you've got very strong individual protection under the Industrial Relations Act, particularly for unfair dismissal. And one thing that is interesting in this country, and that is we don't have specific discrimination legislation that you would see in other jurisdictions. So you don't have race discrimination acts, gender discrimination acts. There's no act prohibiting discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. So it actually tends to be quite pro-employer because if you're doing business here, you can actually advertise for exactly the kind of employee that you want. You could actually put an advert in the newspaper saying that you would like people of a certain ethnic descent or a particular gender or a particular age. Now, that would certainly be discriminatory overseas, but because we don't have that specific legislation, you don't have to go through the motions of interviewing X number of people. Similarly, you can ask whatever questions you want during the interview. So you can ask someone how many children they have or if they have a family. Questions that might be deemed very sensitive overseas can actually be asked in this country. So in that respect, it's very easy to decide whom you want to hire. But you have to get that process right. Because as I've just explained, once you hire them, getting rid of them is not impossible. But you just need to make sure that all the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. You have the proper procedures. So it's quite an interesting dichotomy. On balance, I would say that Malaysia tends to be very pro-investment. In fact, the government has actively gone overseas to promote Malaysia as an investment destination. We have a lot of industries here set up by foreign nationals. We have a lot of, and it's actually very easy even to come to Malaysia to do business. And many people even stay on in Malaysia. Interesting. Well, let's talk about coming to Malaysia and staying on. And I think I'll close with our question about cross-border business opportunities, particularly as it relates to immigration. So thinking of some of the challenges people have coming to the U.S. or traveling from the U.S. to other markets, now particularly in the light of COVID, what are some of the immigration standards in Malaysia? Are they hard? Are there special programs? Just in a nutshell, what, what is it about getting to Malaysia? Is it easier? or is it more difficult for some? I think it'd be relatively easy. In fact, Malaysia is gradually opening up again. Foreign nationals who don't have any form of passes or permit who want to come to Malaysia are basically can apply for a short-term business visa. There's no permission required to leave the country. And this would apply to people like potential investors seeking to do business in Malaysia. So all these people don't even have to apply for an employment pass. So if, for example, a foreign customer was buying a product from Malaysia and he decided he would like to come to Malaysia to inspect the quality of the product, not just the individual product, but perhaps to see the factory to make sure it's being held up to the higher standards. He wouldn't need an employment pass because that'll take a long time. He can actually just come into Malaysia on a short-term business visa, visitor pass, visit the country, take a look at the product, visit the factory, even sign contracts. So it tends to be very proactive towards business. In fact, we even have a portal set up called My Travel Pass Online. And that's more from the business perspective. 
And Malaysia is actually starting to open up to people who have retired. In fact, some years ago, the Malaysian government started a program called Malaysia My Second Home, sometimes more colloquially referred to as the Silver Hair Program. Now, this is for foreign nationals who are above a certain age, generally retirement. They have to have a certain amount of assets in their name, and they are then allowed to come to Malaysia without a job and basically purchase property here and retire. And there's one major distinction between Malaysia and most other countries in the jurisdiction, and that is foreign nationals can actually buy landed property. Now, in most countries, for example, Indonesia, Thailand, you can buy an apartment, but you can't buy landed property. Same with Singapore. Only Singapore citizens or Singapore permanent residents can buy landed property, except in very small areas like Sentosa Island. Otherwise, landed property is restricted for citizens of the country. Malaysia is not the same. So this program, this Malaysia, my second home, is actually not so much for the business community, but for people who have retired. And the idea is that they come to Malaysia and choose to retire here. So you can imagine an old couple, perhaps in the UK, who have this tiny little apartment in London that's worth a fortune. What they would do is they'd sell that apartment, come to Malaysia, and because of the exchange rate, they could actually buy a beautiful bungalow here. The weather is tropical. So this is actually what the Malaysia, my second home program is to cater for. But that's really for people who have retired. In terms of the business community, it's very friendly. Many countries don't even require visas. And those that do, employment passes can be obtained or even short-term business visas are relatively easy to obtain to come to Malaysia to either do business or to consider doing business, as the case may be. Well, this has been a very interesting discussion, Vijay. Thank you so much for your time today. Be well over there in Malaysia, and we'll check back with you another time. Thank you so much, Peter. It was a pleasure speaking with you today. Take care and stay safe. I will. If you'd like to connect with VJ, you can find his bio by clicking on his name in the description of this podcast. Also visit ela.law to receive invitations to our upcoming webinars, download white papers, get access to our on-demand content, or use the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Pete Waltz. Thanks for listening.